This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Professor Deborah Tannen. She is a, visiting the Berkeley campus as the 2017 Hitchcock Lecturer. Since seven, 1979, Tannen has been on the faculty of Georgetown University's Department of Linguistics and since 1991 has held the rank of university professor. A prolific scholar, Tannen has written critically praised books for both scholarly and general audiences. Her books include the number one four-year New York Times bestseller, You Just Don't Understand Women and Men in Conversation. Her most uh, recent book is You're the Only One I Can Tell Inside the Language of Women's Friendship. Professor Tannen, welcome to Berkeley. So nice to be here. Be here again. Yes, welcome back, I should <laughs> Thank say. You. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Brooklyn, New York, raised in Brooklyn, New York. And, and, and I have my Ph.D. from Berkeley. And looking back, how did your parents shape your thinking about the world? You know, the very first book that I wrote in linguistics, uh, actually was edited, uh, was about spoken and written language, orality and literacy. And I dedicated it to my parents, and I said, who taught me about orality and literacy, respectively. <laughs> my mother being the orality, my father being the literacy. Uh, yeah, my parents were born in Europe. My father in Poland, my mother in Russia. They came to this country, uh, my father, in 1920, and that's very significant. That was the last year that there were no limits on immigration from that part of the world. Uh, my mother had her father and some siblings already here, tried to come in 1921, uh, and they had already instituted quotas. So they had to hang out in Poland. They had escaped from Russia over the border. They had to hang out in Poland for about two years till they were able to come in 1923, and that was the last year that anyone could come. By 24, the uh, quotas were so high, no one could come. So they have that background from uh, Europe. Uh, they did not graduate from high school, either one of them. But my father did do high school equivalency at night while he was working in the factory, became a lawyer by attending law school at night, earned a, a master's degree in law the same way. Uh, that background suggests that, that you became conscious of uh, conversation comparing what was being discussed at home and the way it was discussed versus the public schools? Is that fair? Uh, you know, I trace my interest in language to my father. He was very gifted in, in language, both speaking languages, picking them up, uh, and, and writing. Mm -hmm. um, and he was the one, after people had left and we would sit around in the evening, he was the one who would say, did you notice when she said this and she said oh. it this way? And what did that mean? That was really from him. Uh, my mother was very verbal and storied, uh, talked about people, told stories, also very interested mm -hmm. in people, their relationships. Um, I actually have a BA and MA in English literature. So my decision to get the PhD in linguistics was not an obvious one. I was 30. I had lived in Greece, and this was 
also a large part in my interest in different what I call conversational styles, having lived in Greece where the ways of speaking were, were somewhat different. Um, and so I, I think I might have gone into law as my father had done, um, although I didn't really want to have to wear what I thought of as lady shoes and go on the subway every day. <laughs> Um, but really, I was just bored and wanted something that would be intellectually engaging. Uh, and the kind of linguistics that I do, which I, uh, fortunately, I attended a linguistic institute in 1973. The Linguistic Society of America has these at that time every summer, now every other summer. And I didn't really know what linguistics was, but I was curious. This was when you were an undergraduate? I or? am now 30. I see. Yeah, had lived in Greece, so I had that interest I in cross-cultural communication, had a BA and MA in English literature. Yeah. I was teaching remedial writing mm. at the City University of New York mm. at Lehman College, and I was just bored, and I wanted to be intellectually engaged again. I was really thinking more of being a student again than I was of a career goal. Uh, and I went to a linguistic institute, and I was just so fortunate that that summer, the topic was language in context. It was 1973. I think there was um, a zeitgeist at the time. Many fields were turning to everyday interaction, and that was the case with linguistics. I took a course with Robin Lakoff, who had just joined the faculty at Berkeley and was just fascinated by her schema for understanding face-to-face uh, -face conversation. And, and other courses that I took as well really inspired me that way. And all those talks that were being given that summer, all the people who, be, who became giants and were, um, although I didn't realize it, giants in the field of turning to the analysis of language in everyday interaction. So it brought together my father's love of language and his mm. skill with language with my mother's uh, interest in people. Mm -hmm. and her, her facility with everyday conversation. Was the, the Inst Linguistics Institute here at Berkeley? It was at the University of Michigan. I see. But then, in, you came, then Robin Lakoff came to Berkeley, or was she already here? Uh, I think it was the summer between her leaving Michigan and coming to Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So I then applied to and came to Berkeley because she was here. Did, did the, your background as an English undergraduate help you in linguistic studies, or was that just uh, a passing fad? You know, it's so interesting you say that. Uh, there are some of us in linguistics, the kind, again, the kind that I do with this English literature background. So it was not just my BA, but also my master's mm -hmm. uh, in English literature. And I had actually published a couple of papers, one on Yeats and one on Joyce. And I'm sure that helped my application. Um, but, yeah, I, I believe that my love of and sensitivity to literary language has been key. Uh, one of my books that, is published, that I wrote for scholarly audiences was published by Cambridge University Press. It's called Talking Voices, Repetition, Dialogue, and Imagery in Conversational Discourse. Actually, my title for it was Conversational Discourse, Conversational and Literary Discourse. And the theme of that book is that the figures, the ways of using language that we think of as being quintessentially literary, patterns of repetition, patterns of sound, uh, using dialogue, that is, taking the voices of the people that are speaking, um, and details and imagery, uh, all these things are 
thought of as, as literary, appreciated in literary language, but my, my point there is that they are the fundamental building blocks of everyday conversation. So you could say that all my work in linguistics builds directly on my background in literary criticism. Mm. And I'll just add quickly, yes. I actually had written a book of literary criticism. It's uh, analysis of the work of a modern Greek writer. Her name is Lili Ganaku. She's not translated. Mm. Uh, uh, what did you do your dissertation on here at Berkeley? Uh, my dissertation <laughs> was called Conversational Style, Analyzing Talk Among Friends, but it was a comparison of what I call conversational style, uh, ways of speaking, ways of using language uh, that were typical of New York Jewish speakers on the one hand and California non-Jewish speakers on the other. I did not set out to look at New York versus California ways of speaking. My goal, my intention had been simply to take a real conversation, microanalysis of, of real everyday conversation, and describe the conversational styles of each person in that conversation, there were six, and the effects of those conversational ways of using language on each other and on the conversation. Three of the six people were New York Jews. I was one, my best friend, and his brother, three of us. I'm from Brooklyn, they were from the Bronx. And then two of his friends and uh, his former wife, she was British and the two friends had grown up in California. I discovered in analyzing the conversation that the New York speakers were able to express our ways of speaking in a way that the Californians could not because it was hard for them to get the floor. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up doing a study really of New York conversational style and the different effect that it had in the in interactions among the three of us, those who share that conversational style, and how different an effect it had in the interactions with the Californians and the British women. I like to ask my guests uh, how they would advise students who want to prepare for a career in the field that the guest is in, linguistics. What, what do you see as the skills and temperament uh, involved in mastering that work? You need to be compulsive, but then most of us academics are compulsive. <laughs> <laughs> Enormous patience to look at the nitty gritty. You have to be kind of picky. <laughs> um, I spent two and a half months transcribing that two and a half hour conversation. Mm. I timed the pauses. Now a lot of that can be done computationally. Um, I, I <laughs> transcribed it in a way that showed whether someone had, whether T-H-E meant the or whether it represented V. <laughs> I used a capital E. Um, so that kind of patience to look in great detail at the tiny, tiny bits of language I think is something that you need to be a linguist. It, it, uh, listening to you and, and reading uh, several of your works, uh, listening is very important. Uh, so, so a person who's going to do linguistics has to be good at that. I'm amused by your saying that because so few people listen, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. including linguists. <laughs> yeah. But I think, yes, that is very helpful. Be an observer. We describe our field linguistics as descriptive not prescriptive, and that's one of the things that distinguishes us from, for example, people in the field of English literature, uh, English teachers. 
um, we would never say, you're using that wrong. We would say, isn't that interesting? You, you used it that way. Why are you using it that way? Who else uses it that way? So, uh, yeah. It's and it, <laughs> uh, reading, again, uh, your, your, your works, you, you have to be a people person. Uh, uh, that, that's that's my conclusion, but in the sense that, in a way, you're you're being nosy about the way they talk, so you have to be able to deal with them. So your your an analytical skills do not uh, upset them. So therefore, you have to be a people person to make them feel good. Is that? Yeah, I am fascinated by your saying that. Uh, when I was deciding which program to go to, one that I considered was the University of Pennsylvania, where a, a leading sociolinguist was at the time, William LaBeouf. The kind of work he does is rather different from mine, but I, I did go to meet with him and talk to him. And he said, you have to be comfortable going out and talking to strangers because that's how we record their talk that we need in order to analyze. So if you're not comfortable doing that, this is not for you. In the end, I did something different. but. Um, I, I think it happens to be the case that many academics are shy. They're introverts. They're happier mm. alone in their study with their computer screen than they are out talking to people. And there are many successful discourse analysts. That's the kind of work that I do would now be called discourse analysis, um, discourse being the language as it's used in, in uh, interaction. Um, there are many who are quite, uh, quite introverted, quite shy, and are not comfortable interacting with people. But that's okay. They get the recordings, or maybe they look at written language, uh, maybe they look at something they, they heard on television, or maybe they just take time and are able to get close enough to people to record their conversation. Hey, help us understand what conversational style is. Yes, thank you for asking that. Mm. <laughs> conversational style is my my um, uh, main point, you might say, of everything that I do. Let me explain it this way. Uh, when I am asked by people in the real world, you know, journalists or interviewers on television, they'll always say, wouldn't this be a better world if everybody just said what they meant? <laughs> and I often respond, we do say what we mean, but we say it in our own conversational style. We have in mind what we want to say, what we want to accomplish, in this interaction, but we have to make decisions how loudly or softly to speak, what specific words to choose, how relatively direct or indirect we're going to be. Um, if I want you to close the window, am I going to say close the window or am I going to say uh, it's kind of it's cold in here and hope you all conclude that you should close the window. Um, a whole range of features that um, decisions that have to be made when you take your ideas and put them, and emotions and put them into words. Uh, there are people who, when, they, uh, when they're angry, will get very loud and yell. There are people who, when they're angry, will get silent. Um, all these differences in conversational style. Are you going to show interest in somebody by asking questions? Or is it rude to ask questions? Back off. They'll tell you what they want you to know. Uh, and, and I have applied this in a huge range of contexts. Um, it comes up with my starting point, different regional backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different class backgrounds, individual personality, generation, sexual orientation, all these influences on our style, and of course gender differences, which is the topic of the book you just didn't understand, which is the one that got 
the most attention of my books written for uh, general audiences. But I would say conversational style is all the linguistic elements that make up how you say what you mean, and they differ by all these influences. If you talk to someone whose conversational style is relatively similar to yours, chances are your conclusions about what they mean and what they intend and their inner abilities will be relatively accurate. But to the extent that the person you're speaking with has a different conversational style, it's quite likely that your conclusions about their abilities and their intentions and their conclusions about yours may not be accurate. Uh, and also, I want you to explain the difference between a communication and a meta-communication, because I think that's central to uh, your analysis. It, it, it is, yeah. Um, I, these are terms that I borrowed from the anthropologist Gregory Bateson. And he pointed out that anything anyone says, and any gestures they make as well, has a message and a meta-message. So the message is the meaning of the words, the meta-message is how you should interpret those words, what you think you're doing by saying these words in this way at this time. Uh, and in so many of the books I've written where I have examples from real people in their real lives, they're arguing about the message, but it was really the meta-message that got their goat. Um, so when you, let's again take a, a simple example, um, and this was a real conversation that I, that I uh, observed uh, walking along campus with a female colleague, male colleague um, appeared. It was a brisk fall day, kind of chilly. Uh, and we said, we greeted each other, and she said to him, where's your coat? And he said, thanks, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> and, and So what was the meta message of where's your coat? To her, it was simply friendly, a greeting. To him, it was I'm speaking to you as a parent would to a child. And, and they're both there. So, so the, the meta uh, message is really about the structure of the relationship, which is hidden in a way. Well, I would say it's everything about how you mean what you say. So it's what you think of the relationship. It's also the implications. Uh, so I gave the example of it's cold in here as a way to get someone to close the window. You could say the meta message is, please call, close the window. Or you could just say the meta message is, I don't want to impose on you. I don't want to force you to close the window. So I'm being considerate of you. It's, it's everything about how you mean what you say and, and what it says about the relationship at the time that you say it. Um, you know, it's interesting you say it's hidden. All the books I've written, I have examples of message and meta-message. And it's so important because so often people are frustrated from their mm -hmm. conversations. And, uh, and they say, you know, why did you say that? You're, let's take mothers and daughters, uh, where mothers, daughters frequently felt that their mothers were critical, criticizing especially the big three, hair, clothes, and weight, <laughs> and, and how they raise their mm -hmm. children if they have children. Um, and so the mother would say, give you my own example. My mother once said to me, do you like your hair that long? Mm -hmm. Her meta message, <laughs> what was it? I mean, for many people, it would be, your hair's too long. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, later on, uh, <laughs> I, she laughed. Uh, when she, I, at the time that she said it to me, I said, I laughed. And I said, you know, so many women tell me that their mothers criticize their hair. She said, I wasn't criticizing. But then later, 
I said, Mom, what do you think of my hair? She said, I think it's a little too long. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked up that meta message that she's saying something about critical about my hair. Mothers typically felt their daughters were so sensitive. I can't open my mouth. She takes everything as criticism. I'm concerned. I'm showing mm. my caring. I want the world to appreciate her, to see how wonderful she is. I want things to go as well as they can for her. So if she had a better haircut, things would go better mm. for her. Uh, so which is it? Which meta message is accurate? And I think it's so crucial to realize your the meta message somebody picks up may not be the one you intend. So each one, the mother, the daughter, feels the meta message I perceive or I intend is the real one. I'm not criticizing. I'm showing I care. You're criticizing. And, and so it's very, a very crucial point that I, that I make in so many of these is um, that they can both be true. Uh, I also like to ask my guests about creativity. And it strikes me that uh, a source of your creativity is your interest in everyday conversation and your capacity to imply the, uh, apply the theory of linguistics that was already there or that you developed. Uh, thank you. That's absolutely right. And as I said, I think 1973, the year that I went to the Institute, and then 74 to 79 when I was in grad school at Berkeley, there was a turn toward applying various theories to everyday interaction. Uh, so we saw it in philosophy. There was someone named H.P. Grice who developed the schema logic of conversation. He said you could take these, these formal uh, schemas of logic and apply it to everyday conversation. There was a field called conversational analysis in sociology, Sachs-Sagloff Jefferson. And it's interesting, uh, my understanding is that they took conversation simply because it was something from everyday interaction you could pin mm. down by transcribing it and showing that it was rule-governed and that it was orderly. And then there was the work of Robin Lakoff, who I mentioned, of John Gumpers, who was on the anthropology faculty at the time, and of Wallace Chafe, who was in the linguistics department as well. All of them turning their interest to the language of everyday interaction. And so, yes, that has always been my passion, and I think that's my my contribution. And I, and I brought all their theories together, and I could... I don't know how much detail you want to go into how I did that, um, and then added, of course, my own take on it, maybe this uh, sensibility of literary criticism that I brought, um, as well as showing how all these things came together. My goal is to make the audience interested enough in you to grab buy all these <laughs> books, which I'm sure you want. Uh, you, you write about a lot, uh, and, and in fact, you're... You're, were you surprised when your book, You Just Don't Understand, uh, Women and Men uh, in Conversation, became a four-year <laughs> New York Times bestseller? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a four-year bestseller? That doesn't happen. Everybody would be shocked by that. But that it became a bestseller at all, not only was I surprised, my publisher was surprised. There was a period of several months when they refused to print enough books to fulfill hmm. demand. They just didn't believe it was happening. Um, it seemed uh, so unlikely. Uh, I'll tell you something. It's kind of funny. Um, I had ambitious for ambitions for the first book that I wrote for general audiences. That book was called That's Not What I Meant. And it took all the basic ideas of conversational style and conversational interaction 
uh, it was a slim book, very understandable, full of anecdotes and examples from real interactions, just like all my books for general audiences have been. That was the one for which I had ambitions. It's going to change the world. People are going to see that they think everything is, uh, in terms of psychological uh, interpretation, I felt psychologists had been so much better at communicating to the general audience than linguists had been. So that was the one for which I, mm. I was ambitious. The book did okay, not that great. Mm. <clears throat> a friend of mine, who was also an author, someone I had met that way, <clears throat> commented, he said, you just want your books to do well enough that they'll let you write another one. <laughs> I thought, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. And I scaled back my ambitions. And so when I wrote the book, you just didn't understand, it was with that scaled back anticipation of how well it might do. And it was quite shocking. Well, one of the things when I read it for the first time in preparation for this is, oh, my, <laughs> you know, uh, as you go over the interactions between a husband and wife, uh, uh, you say that uh, communication between a man and a woman is uh, cross-cultural communication. Why do you say that? Yes. It's I, true. I'm yes, just yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, it's a metaphor. Um, and I have to say, I still, it just happened last night when I was giving a talk here at Berkeley. People will come up to me and say, that book changed my life. That book saved mm -hmm. my marriage. Uh, that book gave me a way to understand what was happening in my life that I couldn't understand before. So it's <clears throat> that's been a real gift. Um, but yeah, I say it's cross-cultural communication because I'm using the model that I developed based on New York versus California ways of speaking. Uh, girls play with girls, boys play with boys. They are treated differently growing up. They learn ways of using language among their same-sex peers. They bring those ways of using language to conversations with their uh, close men and women they're close to. Um, and, and I use this metaphor, too, sometimes, uh, that women expect their husbands, their boyfriends, their male partners, if, if they're heterosexual, uh, to be a new and improved version of a best friend. And they're frustrated when it doesn't work out that way. And it can come down to these different conversational styles. I can give you two key examples mm -hmm. that turned out to be kind of like the, what I think of as the greatest hits from that book. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> one is a conversation takes place when you're riding in the car. And the woman says to the man, um, are you thirsty, dear? Would you like to stop for a drink? And he isn't. So he says, no. And then later it turns out that she had wanted to stop. And this was told to me by the man. And he said, why does she play games with me? Why did she want me to be a mind reader? Why didn't she just tell me she wanted to stop? And my comment was, probably she didn't expect a yes-no answer. She probably expected something, <clears throat> something like, I don't know, how do you feel about it? And then she could say, I don't know, how do you feel about it? And then they could talk about how they both feel about it and come to a decision taking everybody's preferences into account. So again, we have message and meta-message. When she asked, are you thirsty? Would you like to stop for a drink? She's sending a meta-message. I want to know what you want. I'm not going to impose what I want on you. And when he says no, <laughs> she hears a meta-message. I don't care what you want. We're going to do what I want. <clears throat> this may come up later. 
when he says, why didn't you tell me? And she says, we always do what you want anyway. <laughs> so it becomes a, uh, it comes a, a, a meta message about caring. It's, that is so much the case in close relationships. And, and I want to be so clear here. Most people are inclined to think one way is good and the other is bad. So there are those who think, of course you should say what she means. I hate this indirectness. It's passive aggressive. And there are those who think, of course it would be rude to say, I want to stop. That's terrible. You, you have to start vague and find out where everybody is and make a decision taking everybody's preferences into account. Either one works well. What was the second example? Uh, okay. This is a conversation where at uh, the end of the day, say, and a woman is telling a man about a problem, and she tells, he tells her how to fix it. And she's frustrated. The comment I made at the time was she didn't want a solution. She wanted to talk about it. And he's frustrated because why would you want to talk about it if you don't want to do anything about it? And I do trace this to ways of speaking that are quite typical for women and men. And it's so important for me to say here, I can't say this enough. We're talking about tendencies, typical, uh, many, most. We're not saying all because there are so many other influences like, like culture. But the tendency is uh, that when uh, women might say to a friend um, about a problem, the friend might say, oh, why do you think he said that? And, and then what did you say? And then, and then what do you think you could have done? And what do you think he'll do if you do that? And <laughs> you ha ask all these questions, and you do work your way around to giving advice, but you need all that information to know what advice to give. But again, message and meta-message being willing to engage in an extended conversation about the problem that someone you care about is experiencing, that in itself sends a meta message of caring. And so the frustration, I think, is less she didn't want a solution than she didn't want it right off the bat. Mm -hmm. uh, and the solution cuts short the conversation, where so starting the conversation was probably her motive. Uh, we, we, uh, everybody has to go out and read this book because <laughs> it, it's mind-opening, especially a, a husband and wife, uh, but maybe also others. But in a nutshell, because we can't, uh, I want to go on to political stuff that you've written, that, that uh, you, you talk about the difference in wanting solidarity versus a different, somebody wanting power. And, and you have a set of adjectives and descriptive statements of women versus uh, uh, men. And men, through socialization and their, their childhood and other factors, uh, uh, essentially are interested in hierarchy. They're interested in power. They, they're more focused on I'm up and you're down. Whereas women, as we said earlier, are into solidarity, caring about the other, uh, uh, bringing everyone along in the circle. Yeah, uh, so I'm glad you brought that up, but I want to say right off the bat, um, it isn't as absolute as that. Um, every interaction is a matter of balancing a hierarchical dynamic, that is, who's up, who's down, mm -hmm. and a closeness, distance dynamic. Is this way of talking bringing us closer or pushing us farther apart? And we're both, women and men and all individuals, always interested in all these levels. But it's very common for a woman and a man to walk away from the same conversation 
one having focused on the question, does this put me in a one-up, one-down position, and the other having focused on the question, does it bring us closer or push us farther apart? Uh, and, and again, it's so important to say, tends to come and often, not, not everybody and not always. But the example I gave earlier is a perfect example of that. A question, where's your coat? If you focus on the closeness distance, I'm being uh, friendly, showing you that I care about you. Uh, the, the hierarchical dimension is, thanks, mom. You're the, you're the mother talking to the child. Just a very few quick mm -hmm. examples. Um, a woman, a man, th these are all real examples that I encountered and that I give in the book. Um, man tells his wife, hey, I got a call from my high school friend. He's going to be in town Friday. I'm going to have dinner with him. And she feels hurt. You shouldn't present this as a fait complete. You should, we should discuss it. Maybe I had plans for Friday night. You know, we're in this together. Uh, and he said, um, I can't tell my friend I need to ask my wife for permission. Mm -hmm. So is checking with her, asking for permission, that's the who's up, who's down. Is it showing caring? We're involved. Our lives are wrapped up together. There's somebody who's uh, going to be impacted if I make a decision to have dinner with you. So it's just which one you focus on, and I have many other examples like that. Maybe I should develop an app uh, as a wedding planner and make your book available as a, <laughs> as a part of the gift package. Now, uh, I want to actually move to a different area, which is about uh, civic discourse, uh, politics today, and how some of your analysis might apply. And uh, let me ask... Uh, uh, in, in researching for this interview, I found a book uh, that you had written uh, that uh, uh, on uh, a critique of America's argument culture, and the book was published in 1999. Very prescient. Tell us about your idea there. Yes, the book is called The Argument Culture, Stopping America's War of Words. The hardback t subtitle was Moving from Debate to Dialogue. Uh, the idea was that we are approaching, in this I say we, our American culture, but maybe more broadly uh, world culture, certainly European culture, uh, we are approaching more and more things in an adversarial spirit. It's an over-application of the assumption that the best way to come to truth is debate. That means find two people as opposed as possible, the most extreme ends of the continuum as possible, and let them fight about it. And this brings us to all the aspects of the press that I write about. Uh, one is the tendency to approach everything as two sides in a debate, whereas most things don't have two sides. They have many sides. The other is the valuation of attack. And we have seen this more and more, that journalists see as their uh, responsibility to attack, to find what's wrong, to write negative stories. Um, if, you, if you were to write a positive story, that's a puff piece, and they're embarrassed to do that. It wouldn't be respected by their colleagues. So that's the press. And I also wrote about politics. There was so much evidence at the time that I wrote it, and there's more now, uh, that whereas in the past the two parties could work together at least to some degree, uh, that it had become so polarized that there was... No, no meeting ground at all. And uh, of course, it's the Repo Republicans, we might as well just say it out there because it's true, that the Republicans have decided uh, that the path forward is to oppose anything the Democrats want. And it may be what they wanted before, but now the Democrats want it, so they're just going to stop it. 
Um, and, and so the uh, press, politics, and academia, and that's kind of where I started with all this, uh, that many people feel the way to start an article in, a, in an academic uh, article, say what's been done before and what's wrong with it, so that you can be right and they can be wrong. But that isn't the way we're going to come to understanding. Yeah, sometimes it's great to say, read this article, tell me what's wrong with it. But there are other things you can do, too. Read this article and see what you can use in it. Mm -hmm. Things you don't agree with, where did it come from? Maybe it comes out of a different intellectual tradition. How is it related to things we've read in the intellectual tradition so, so we prefer? So synthesis and integration and respectful reading of those you oppose. In a way. Yes, and you're right to use the word respectful, but I... I think some people would see the oppositional discourse as respectful. And in fact, they might think that if you don't attack and ask critical questions, that's a lack of respect. Mm -hmm. So what I'm, what I'm trying to call attention to in there is something a little bit different, that we should realize this is not the only way to truth and that it has many negative consequences. Uh, and, and what I had in mind there, among others, was ways that it obscures truth and goodness, we are seeing this in the in the current um, in the current environment. Um, if if journalists are, are going to put everything into one 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 example of this is the idea that everything is opposing camps, you end up with this false equivalence. I have to have two sides to every debate. So if I'm going to write about climate change, I need to say something about the people who oppose, who say there's no such thing as climate change. But the fact is that there's only a few people who say that, and they're all the same ones, and they were funded by the fossil fuel industry, and yet there they were over and over, again, back in the late 90s, um, being cited as if this were really two sides of a debate. I, I use the example of the Holocaust. The United States, in the United States, Holocaust deniers have had more success than any other country. And I was able to show that the reason was that here, they could masquerade as the other side in a debate. And there's no better explanation, uh, example that there are some situations where there is no other side. There's truth. Uh, you wrote this in the 90s, 1990s. It's gotten much worse. And, you know, uh, you talk about the, the factors that influence uh, uh, the, the, co the conversational style. And we're seeing stark inequality city-rural divide, cosmopolitanism versus provincialism. So, so I guess uh, it's, what, what we're witnessing now is two tribes, basically, where there's an enormous amount of miscommunication, as you talked about with regard to men and women. But, but, but it, it's, it's social in a rather stark and terrifying way. You're absolutely right. And I'm going to give a shout out now to another book that was just recently published. Mm. It's called One Nation After Trump. And it's by three very gifted political scientists, uh, E.J. Dion, Norm Ornstein, and Thomas Mann, um, who's right here in Berkeley. Uh, and they are so um, convincing and significant, I think, in what they point out. How did we get here? And they point out that Trump being, uh, I, I won't say being elected, but being becoming president <laughs> is the culmination of 
forces that can be traced very clearly to Newt Gingrich in the Republican Party and his decision that the way for Republicans to gain power was to oppose everything that the Democrats do and to demonize government, make government into the enemy, and to demonize uh, journalists, make them the enemy. And he shows how, they show in this book how this has been incremental, but it didn't just come out of nowhere. And so you could say that some of what they're describing there is what I described in the book, the argument culture, the, uh, the valorization of attack as a means to an end. Let's look at the two candidates uh, uh, in, in our last presidential election. Uh, we, we were uh, left with Trump for various kinds of reasons that uh, uh, defy conventional political wisdom. But uh, it's as if Trump now as president is an extreme version of a, of a style of conversation uh, that emphasizes power, hierarchy, and a dismissiveness that's, that's really quite extraordinary. Yes. Uh, well, for one thing, it breaks all the norms mm -hmm. of political discourse, something, again, that, uh, that Ornstein, Dion, and, and Mann write about in their book. Um, it's normalizing a kind of um, discourse that in the past you would have seen only in the street. It was not in the public domain. Um, so sending out these tweets, insulting people, saying things that are completely untrue, and because you say them and you say them again, some people will believe you. Um, I think all of this is breaking all the norms of political discourse, and that's partly what's happening with Trump. <clears throat> and this is, in a way, the again, it's the um, culmination of something that we've been building toward for a while, uh, and that is what would have been just in the conversational, everyday domain moving into the public domain. So whereas before, and I sometimes trace this back to Ronald Reagan, he was called a great communicator. He was not a great orator. But he was able to make his public um, speeches sound conversational. And that isn't malign in itself. I mean, Clinton was great at that, and I think he used it to good effect. But um, I want to say something I think is so important here. A lot of people are asking, how did Trump become president? How did so many people vote for Trump, knowing what we knew about him? I think it's equally important to ask, how did so many people not vote for Hillary Clinton, given all the excellent things we knew about her, given her vastly superior experience, um, her vastly superior fitness for office? And I think there are two explanations, and one is the argument culture. From the time that she entered the public uh, stage, way back, 1992, she was the wife of a, a candidate in the Democratic primary. I wrote an op-ed called The Hillary Factor. Whatever she did, she was slammed. Um, she, her hair in the beginning was very simple. She kept it back with a headband. She was ridiculed for that. She had it styled and, and colored. She was ridiculed for that. She's having a makeover. She's manipulative. Um, she was thought to be childless, which is quite uh, stigmatized for women. 
that was because they kept their daughter Chelsea out of the public eye. So they made it known that they had a daughter. She was accused in Time magazine for yuppie overdoting on her daughter. I mean, these are kind of simple examples, but whatever she did, she was slammed for and accused for. <clears throat> and I think much of it was a very knee-jerk response on the part of journalists that they really felt it's their job to always write negative things. And this had, so there's a number of ways that this played out in this last election. One is we had been hearing terrible ac accusations of her for, the, for decades. And so there's a smoke, there's fire feeling to it. Um, she must have done something in Benghazi. She must have done something in Whitewater. It turned out she didn't. All those years of Whitewater investigation showed there was nothing, no wrongdoing. But the smoke is left. Uh, and so there was a feeling that she's, she's been criticized so much. And um, again, uh, Ornstein and the others make this point. Trump had done so many things wrong that every day there was a new scandal. There was so little to say mm -hmm. against Hillary. There was just emails, which, by the way, again, I believe was mostly fabricated, uh, a fabrication of how serious this error was. But you read about emails every day because they had to attack her, too. And so people ended up thinking this email stuff was huge and forgetting about all these things that they read about him. So that's one thing, I think, the argument culture, all, that, all those years of attack. And the other is what I write about as a double bind that faces women in positions of authority. And you wrote this in the 1990s. That's right, right. 1992. In a, in a collection uh, of writers talk about Hillary. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I have an article called The Double Bind, mm -hmm. and it's in a book, uh, 13 Ways of Looking at Hillary. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so just very briefly, a double bind is a situation where you have two requirements you must fulfill, but anything you do to fulfill one actually violates the other. When women are in positions of authority, they have requirement be a good woman and requirement be a good leader. Our expectations of a good woman and a good leader are at odds. So to be a good woman, you should be self-deprecating. You shouldn't seem to serve yourself. You shouldn't put yourself forward. You shouldn't talk about what you're good at. Uh, if you're a good leader, you should put yourself forward. You should seem confident. Uh, you should downplay anything you did wrong and play up everything you've contributed. And so women are in a double bind. If they fulfill our expectations of a person in authority, then they're respected, but they're not liked. If they fulfill our expectations of a woman, they're liked, but they're underestimated. And uh, I, came I came upon this observation and this way of looking at things uh, in research I did on women in the workplace, and that was a book called Talking from Nine to Five. That's where I first wrote about that, uh, where women in positions of authority in the workplace faced this double bind and still do. But it clearly was going on with Hillary, and I believe that that played a huge role in all the people who would say things like, I don't know, I'd still like her. Um, why is she shouting? She didn't talk any, any more loudly than Bernie Sanders did, but when a man shouts, he's addressing thousands of people, you have to shout. That felt okay, but to hear a woman shouting, it rubs you the wrong way. There's another element in this that I want to ask you about, because you I now have an interest in uh, communication on different platforms. Uh, Trump 
was the first to effectively use Twitter in a political campaign. What what do you have to say as a linguist uh, about that? Because it it's really uh, become an important element of communicating his in-your-face, I'm the man, I'm the boss, uh, hierarchical way of, of thinking that is so d- dismissive of anything that tries to achieve solidarity, asking people what they think, and so on. Well, there's a number of things we can say about using Twitter in this way. First of all, uh, it goes directly to people. It cuts out all the uh, middlemen in the past that would have been a filter. Um, and, and sometimes that's good. I mean, it's a little bit, of, you could say, an extension of what Roosevelt did with fireside chats, go right to people. Uh, because of its brief brevity, um, it becomes uh, epithets. Um, you don't have to explain what, you have, what you're saying. Just throw something out. And uh, he, he uses language that is completely, as again, about breaking norms, completely inappropriate to public discourse and to diplomacy and to uh, any sense of the dignity of his office. Uh, it's kind of like what you would say in the street when you're mad at somebody and, and you want to cast dispersions on them. But that is perfectly suited to Twitter. Uh, and so people can, the one people that are his uh, fans, pick this up, and this is great. They got their whole story. They don't want the backstory. They just get this little bit, and it, it resonates with them. And he's insulting somebody. Yeah, I like that. I insult people. I think those people are pretty crummy too. And so it's satisfying, I think, in a way that can be very politically effective, in a, in a very dangerous, of course, uh, way. Does a linguist have anything to offer about how we transcend these tribal divisions? You know, the the it's it's cross cultural communication now, the world we're in. What 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 can we do about that? I'm asked this all the time, and I so wish I had an answer. I do believe that what we're dealing with is way deeper than just ways of using language. Language is always a huge part of things. Um, I wish I could say if we talk this way, we're going to bridge those divides. The problem is that there are people who want these divides. They're finding it useful, and they are going to continue to try to stoke the flames of division. And so given that, what can we, uh, as the people who want the, 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 the divisions bridged, what can we do? Um, I mean, if it's helpful to understand what your, what your enemies think, yeah, you could listen. You could try to get to the bottom of what they're, what's motivating them. I think that's always a good thing to do. Um, I think talking personally to people who disagree with you is always a huge, hugely useful thing to do. But both to understand what motivates them and, and maybe eventually to try changing their minds a bit. And, and they're certainly the first thing to do is to listen. Uh, don't start right out trying to tell them why they're wrong and you're right. <laughs> and maybe find some common ground that you could build on to offer another perspective that they might consider. But the, the broad uh, forces that we're up against um, the position that the Republican Party has taken, and they're one of the two parties running our country, that, that's very challenging. And I'm not sure 
that I have anything I can recommend in terms of language that could work against that. Uh, but, I, but I think trying to change it in our personal lives is certainly something worth doing. When we feel ourselves um, responding to others in a, in a really um, corrosive way, you know, we, you're evil, I'm good, to maybe try to temper that and, and reframe it in some way. Uh, after reading your, your, your books and your papers, uh, I'm struck by also its possible relevance to this free speech debate. And I have a question for you, which is that, especially at Berkeley, free speech meant something. And we now have new actors who are changing the conversation about free speech because really their meta-communication is not what I have to say is important, but rather how can what I say disrupt the, the context in which the conversation is happening? This is becoming extremely complicated. I think at one time the Berkeley free speech movement back in the 60s was clear. Um, the bad guys want to suppress our speech. We're the good guys. We have a right to speak. Now, that was pretty easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe not easy to achieve, but easy to feel clear on. We now have people pointing out that if you allow people to speak and the, what they're speaking is hate speech uh, and, and um, encouraging others to demonize uh, people who are different, and, and it's true. I mean, this, a lot of this is reminiscent of uh, times in the past when speech that demonizes people you disagree with has led to violence. And there's plenty of evidence that it does. You know, you're out there saying you hate immigrants and then someone goes and beats up an immigrant or shits them. So uh, it's very complicated, especially, I think, for people who see themselves as liberal, um, who are inclined to be perhaps free speech extremists. You know, everybody should be allowed to speak. Um, and I think there are people who, who would see us liberals, and I say us because perhaps at one time I would have been in that camp, um, as, as part of the problem because we are trying to um, make it easier for people to speak in a way that is going to incite violence and lead to real minimally discrimination and, and, uh, and worse. So I think it's pretty. It's become much more complicated an issue than it seemed to be in the '60s. Uh, Professor Tannen, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It was a very informative uh, conversation, and I uh, recommend that uh, the audience go about and buy, if not one, several of your books. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.